personal views and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are their own and are not legal advice or official statements by their organizations. Hello, my name is Debbie Reynolds. They call me the Data Diva. This is the Data Diva Talk Privacy Podcast, where we discuss data privacy issues with business leaders around the world, talking about information that businesses need to know now. So today, I am very proud to have a friend of mine, Dawn Christie, on the program. Uh, Dawn Christie, she has she wears many hats. I put it like that. So she's a vice president uh, of um, uh, Cyber Armana at Cyber Armana, correct? Yeah. Uh, trained lawyer, cyber risk expert. Uh, she is involved in girls and women in STEM, an advocate for that. She's a speaker, a lecturer, an author, a writer, an editor, a, mon- a mentor, uh, many things. Also, uh, Dawn has her own venture uh, that she's the CEO of, which is the Cyber Dawn, which I thought was a great uh, play on your name. <laughs> so, hello. Hello. Hi, Debbie. Yeah, thanks for the introduction. It's so nice to see you um, and, talk, and speak with you today. We, um, I think we met back in 2019, and we've been sort of geeking out on things ever since. Uh, I was That's in true. Chicago at the time, <laughs> and uh, we met at the Union League Club, and um, we, we basically found synergy right away. What, what's interesting is uh, at the beginning of last year, I left Chicago and the winter and came to South Florida, to join a startup, Cyber Armada Insurance Brokers, and a month later was the was the COVID lockdown. Oh, so wow. I've really spent you know the last fourteen months doing a lot of Zoom meetings <laughs> to meet people here and also to do business. So it's it's all part of the uh, the pandemic way of doing things. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I don't think a lot of people feel sorry for you being locked down in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> I literally got off the plane, got a car, got an apartment, started a job, and then locked down. So, hey, yeah. And I missed, like, what was it, 45 inches of snow this winter? Yeah, so we had a ton of snow. It was ridiculous. The good yeah. thing about it, if you didn't have to go out, like, if you were working from home, you weren't yeah. really traveling around a lot. You just couldn't really do any outdoorsy things unless you were sledding or something. I don't know. Yeah, we yeah. all spent a lot of time at home, right? Totally, totally. Well, you and I have a friend in common. So Lee Newbecker, he's kind of our link as well. So yes. um, he's in, very involved with the Union League Club and I think his office is in that building, right? Or cl- close next door. Yes. Uh, and he's yes, our forensic forensic guy. Um, I'm trying yes. to get him on the program if I can. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to get him on or let's do a panel sometime. So yeah, that'd be <laughs> yeah. fun. That'd be fun. Yeah. So well, let's start out by talking about your passion for cyber. So a- as a lawyer, I feel like you're a little bit different than a lot of people that I see. So you yeah. come from this, obviously, you, you know, being a trained lawyer, but then also you get involved in kind of it, the advisory part on mm-hmm. cyber. So can you just explain that? Sure. So I, I basically come at things from like emerging tech and emerging risk. And earlier in my career, I was in another emerging risk area, which was environmental. And it's really analogous to, you know, at that time, pollution claims and how are we going to handle it? And a whole new line of insurance was developed at that time. Uh, GL policies had had, uh, pollution losses and Lloyd's took a hit. And so basically, 
a new area of insurance was developed. And I see that as analogous to cyber with cyber attacks and then a new insurance was developed. And um, my interest started, I, when you go back to basics in 05, 2005, I heard about the TJ Maxx data breach. And that was my first ever hearing about a data breach and, and digging into it and then doing research and writing on it. And then uh, back in 2012, I joined a large insurance, a reinsurance broker in Chicago. And there was able to not only handle my claims book, but become a cyber subject matter expert. So I did a lot of self-study and that's where I really started diving deep and lecturing and we had practice groups and things. And part of it is I'm a wordings geek. So I like looking at the wordings and analyzing them, which is, is kind of strange. There's probably 5% of people that enjoy diving into wordings. Um, but the other is it developed over time. And, and the place I'm at now is this desire to help people. I mean, under, under the pandemic, we've had an unbelievable um, increase in cyber attacks. And so individuals, friends, family, small business, and then obviously large enterprises, many, many people have been hit that weren't before. So it really sort of sparked this idea to, first of all, come down and join this startup and try um, sort of a new venture with that. But then also in setting up this year, the Cyber Dawn, um, the idea being to help um, people uh, fight cyber attacks and learn how to not only be aware, but act on the training that they may get. So the other, the other gap that's happening is that they are not really communicating within their family or within their small business. And so it's about communication and it's about uh, implementing the training that you get to protect yourself. Yeah. So I think you know, I feel the same way you do about communication. I feel like we are in dire straits in terms of being able to really communicate to the people who truly need it, mm -hmm. uh, you know, educate them about cybersecurity. Um, you know, let's talk about that a bit because I feel like, you know, sure. it's kind of a divide and conquer thing that I feel like right now. Well, so, you know, and it's like any other area, you know, everybody many people will say you've got to target this person in a company, this person in a company. The re reality is a lot of us are remote and will stay remote. So that dynamic has changed, but you know, top to bottom, bottom to top, you have to communicate the concerns, the risks, you really should test them, do dry runs and make sure that, you know, the, 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 uh, the most lowly staff person and the head of it, the CEO and the board all are clued in, on what's happening. And that's kind of where this NIST cybersecurity framework comes in because it's voluntary, it's not mandatory, but the idea is get everybody on board with that. Um, so communication has been a gap in this area, even in the purchase of cybersecurity, cyber risk management, cyber insurance. If the top doesn't know what the problem is, they're not going to approve the budget for it. So communication is key and privacy issues as well, as you know. Yeah. And then, you know, I feel like, um, you know, uh, someone who is a cyber criminal, they go after the lowest hanging fruit. So the thing that they can do the easiest is what they try to pluck off. Right. So obviously yes. there are things like, you know, solar winds, which we can talk about, which are more high level, sophisticated attacks, but the everyday day-to-day -day things that people go through are sort of like phishing. So 
what I hear a lot of times, people say, oh, this this new scam where people ask you, will say that you they um, uh, someone has uh, frozen your social security number or something like that. But yeah. a, regardless of what they say and how they say it, typically it is a communication that you receive that you didn't ask for. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to create a panic situation or try to make you add act or do something in a hurry, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And you know, you, you hit it on the head there. Cybercrime is a crime of opportunity. And so if, if the bad actors have an opportunity, it's too lucrative for them not to pursue it. So, you know, you think, well, there's gotta be a way to defend in this. And, and part of the defense is just the awareness, implementing things and, and being cautious. And I think there's so many stories every day on the news now, and people are aware of like scams with calls to the elderly and what have you. But nevertheless, every day you hear of somebody that was, you know, um, spoofed, fooled, gave up money, gave up their social security number. So, yeah. um, you know, the battle, the battle wages on. Right. I had someone, I can't remember if someone gave me the story. I think it was on a podcast I was on. You know, he's a cyber expert and he said he had called, his, he lives in a different town from his mother. And he just happened to call her and like, what are you doing? Well, I'm on my way to the police station. It's like, what, what are you going there for? I guess someone had scammed her and said that she was going to get in trouble. She didn't give someone money and they're going to meet her outside the police station. So she wouldn't get arrested. She was like, I just didn't want to get in trouble. And like, thankfully her son had called her. It's like, no, don't do that. Don't do that. You know? So yeah, uh, you just never know. I mean, it can happen to anyone, uh, especially. Yeah, it's, it could be kids. It could be seniors. It's, it's all ages, uh, Debbie. Yeah. And then two, I'd like to talk about executives. So I've had a lot of experience with executives in the organization that don't want to follow the same cybersecurity training or advice that's being given. And a lot of times they're super high targets because unfortunately a lot of executives end up getting more access than they need to stuff uh, than they actually use. And then if they're using assistance or whatever, you know, they're a big target where they say, oh, John said do this. And they're like, they're afraid to question. So then they go ahead and do this thing and it's like a big deal. But I mean, how many times we have to fall for that trick before we know that we need to change? And also, you know, habits die hard. So you've got this idea or this uh, attack vector of business email compromise. And somebody told a story where someone did actually get a request to change a bank account, went to a senior manager, could have been CEO or whoever, and said, uh, did you make this request? Yeah, yeah. And didn't even really look at it. And then, you know, a month later, when they realized the money had gone astray, that was two-factor authentication that was sort of brushed by the wayside. And, you know, the, the person handling the bank accounts tried. And if somebody says, yeah, yeah. So again, <laughs> it, top to bottom, bottom to top, people have to be aware of it. And if somebody's changing bank details, and I mean, I am so risk averse <laughs> that I drive my circle of friends and family crazy because I won't click or do anything. It's like the other extreme. But if somebody wants to change a bank account, I mean, that's a red flag. Oh, totally. Absolutely. If you're right. You're not you aware of that. 
I would do three factor, you know, yeah. whatever it takes. <laughs> yeah, totally. Right. I think also one other thing is that you have to sort of switch up the mode of communication. So if they sent you an email, call them or, you know what I'm saying? Call yes. a person to verify or if they called you email, you know, so switch yeah, it up. That's a good point. Yeah. Because they like to continue, like if they're texting you, they want to continue to text. They don't want to do other things. So I sure. think being able to try to be savvy about that. And, you know, I like your idea about three factor, maybe even four factor, <laughs> yeah. you know, especially when it comes to like bank banking and anything like that. That makes perfect and sense. You, you know, we look at all the authorizations we have, you know, in the corporate world, in the business world. And, you know, Sue has access to this. Jim has access to this. But when you're talking about wiring millions of dollars, there should already be a queue of authorization anyway. And in particular, if there's going to be a change of the account number. So oh, totally. some of this is just kind of like, I don't know, business best practices. I think so. I think so. Especially if it's a, a high, high amount. Um, yeah. But I think, too, you know, they're taking advantage of the culture of, of, of companies where some people, depending on who it is, they may be afraid to question you know, something. So like they get an email from their CEO saying, do this, you know, they want to be a good employee they want to be a team player. So they want to do it. But part of that is just the psychology of people and like the culture within the organization. Yeah. And the, the other example that we heard and I, I used in a, in an alert I wrote was the long weekend. We have Memorial day coming up. Right. So, and actually a law firm in Chicago did a skit on this one, which was fabulous. So the CEO is on flight to the Bahamas and it's a Friday and you get the call that you're going to change the bank account. The bank manager of the company or the accounts payable and receivable leaves a voicemail because the CEO is in flight and that's the two factor. And the money gets wired. And of course, Monday, everything shuts. So on Tuesday, they all discover it. Right. And so, you know, the best intentions, the best laid plans, right? Yeah. So you really almost need to have a substitute if the one person isn't available. And this yeah, happens totally. a lot on long weekends, holiday weekends. Oh, that's a good point. And then one thing I always say is whenever someone is trying to do this, they want you to do it really fast yes. before it gets uh, found out. So if you just wait, yeah, uh, they'll that'll drive them totally crazy because they want you to do something really fast. So if you're not sure about what to do, don't do anything and just wait, just wait yeah. it out and see, yeah. you know, wait an extra day or wait, you know, a few hours before, or, you know, wait till they call you back. You know what I'm saying? So sure. if, if a person in cybercrime, they're seeing that you're not uh, acquiescing to their request, they'll typically move on to someone else who's much easier. Yeah, and I, I also think just we all have to take individual responsibility, but also believe that this is not insurmountable. Some of this is just, I, I hate to use that, that phrase because it's used over and over, but best practices, whether you call it cyber best practices or cyber hygiene, some of this is almost common sense after a while. And maybe because we work in the sector, it seems that way. Um, but to somebody who's experiencing it for the first time, you just hope there's someone they can ask or reach out to to say, this sounds weird to me, even if it's on your home computer at home, you know, and yeah. um, 
So that's that's the thing. There there almost has to be like a collaborative effort and, and spread the word. That's all you, all we can keep doing. Yeah. And I highly recommend, like you said, that people talk to their families as well. So a lot yeah. of us are in tech, you know, or legal and stuff. And we yeah. we understand this because we live this every day, but you know, your grandma may not or mm-hmm. you know, your parents or your children may not. So yeah. being able to talk to those people, like I think the first uh we had a family call recently and, you know, we were just trying to catch up with each other on Zoom and stuff. And, you know, I just said, hey, you know, I had a, like a cyber thing with them and they were like, oh, that's really helpful. I'm like, don't click on links that you didn't ask for and stuff like that. So, <laughs> uh, and I typically wouldn't do that because more of that, that's typically about, those calls are typically about like who did what or who's getting married and stuff like that. But I actually yeah. threw that in because I feel like that's really important. And if I didn't say it, you know. I would feel bad if someone was harmed because I could have told them that. It's interesting because you bring up a point that I've discovered doing all this networking and Zoom meetings, and that is uh, terminology. I had someone say to me after a networking event sort of offline, I don't know what cyber is. And I mean, we assume everybody knows what that word is or what cyber insurance is or a cyber attack. And so you know, you, this is why I, I keep going back to basics to think if somebody, you know, landed from Mars and didn't know all this terminology, how would you explain it so that, you know, everyday people can protect themselves? And so that's the tack I'm taking. I'm, I'm going to be doing a talk to 65 and over group in um, May at one of the universities here in Florida. And so I'm getting in the mindset of like senior cyber yeah. But also with all of the kids working from home, working, studying at home with their parents at home, I thought the other thing might be to actually try to give a talk to kids. And then it sort of trickles up to the parents. You know, you'll see a child say, well, look at this, look at this, look at this. And they could actually teach um, yeah. their parents as well. So it's, it's almost like picking the two, those two age gro- groups and then filling it in in between. Yeah, it's kind of weird because you think like kids are in college right now, they've always had the internet, so they don't know what it's like to not have it. So yeah. to them, is it may be more comforting. You know, they're not as, as weary as maybe someone like me is yeah. about that. So, yeah. But I think that, you know, your specialty being uh, data privacy, I think also a lot of them are not so aware on the privacy that they've surrendered by growing up with the internet that we that are older are because we knew it before everybody knew everything about us. Right. So, you know, pre social media (laughs) and all that. So it's kind of like, you know, you could say, have they let their guard down when it comes to their privacy? Right. Oh, absolutely. The, uh, you know, I tell my nieces and nephews, um, you know, don't announce where you're going to go. You don't say, well, I'm going to Vegas this weekend. You know, don't do that. You know, maybe after your Vegas weekend, you could post a picture or something like that. But I mean, that's yeah. too much information, really. Uh, exactly. I, I would love to talk about this movie that just came out, Coded Bias. Um, oh, yes. So I saw it. You saw it. Uh, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Yeah. So. I was shocked to discover it through a sort of a LinkedIn post, uh, maybe a couple months back, and I, I'm not 100% how to, pronou- how to pronounce her name, Joy Bulawamwini. Yes. Excuse me for the pronunciation. Mm-hmm. But she um, was not really an AI specialist. She was an MIT student who was working on a project and discovered 
that because she had a black face, um, the algorithms in this AI program that was supposed to help with, as I understood it, dealing with you know bias and prejudice would not recognize her. And she literally put on one of those like white plastic hockey masks that we know from the Halloween movies. Mm -hmm. And then it recognized her. And then she took it off and it didn't recognize her, the facial recognition. So it, it's funny how one thing like that created this whole movement for her mm -hmm. to get involved in this. So she pivoted and started really focusing on this and got involved with um, some certain, you know, different action groups and things and really uh, unveiled the fact that the bias of the programmer is going to be in the AI or right. the lack of bias of the programmer. Right. And that was like a light bulb moment for her. So what are your thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, the, the movie is really great uh, because mm -hmm. it explains it, you know, like you said, from the inception, like what, what incident happened that made her see that this is a problem and this, you know, had her uh, go on and write papers about it and talk about it around the world as well as, um, you know, uh, uh, forming the algorithm, algorithmic justice league, right? Uh, yes, yes. So I follow her work quite a bit, actually, Dr. Joy. Um, yes. She and uh, Timnit, uh, Dr. Timnit, uh, who was formerly from Google, they had written a paper many years ago. I highly recommend that people go look at it. It's not mm -hmm. long. I think it's about 18, maybe 20 pages long yeah. or so. But they were explaining uh, bias in AI, and they gave very specific examples about you know, the color coding of faces of the very narrow spectrum uh, that they were using in that. And a lot mm -hmm. of times uh, because they aren't coded for uh, darker skin, um, mm -hmm. you know, these AI, they really, you know, they're being sold as if they work for everyone when they have never been really tested on everyone. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and there's kind of a lack of diversity in the people who are, uh, are involved in this. So there are people, you know, like me, brown people that uh, that are interested <laughs> in this area and we can definitely help help with that because you don't want people to be harmed um, as a result of that, right? Sure. And one thing, one scene they showed there's, and I, again, this is going back a few months, there's a, um, a public interest advocacy group in the UK, you may know what the name of it was, but they showed this guy, um, the, the facial recognition cameras somewhere in the UK had, you know, um, the police were surrounding this, this man and it ended up that he was not the right person, but also the fact that the system can be faulty. Oh yeah, definitely. And so this guy was being, you know, surrounded by police and there was somebody trying to help him. And so, you know, you really got that feeling of like big brother and mm -hmm. you could be mistargeted um, and caught on this facial recognition camera and stopped and, and go through all of this stuff. And you may or may not have your civil rights protected. So you do wonder, you know, where are we going to be in 10 to 20 years? Is this this is going to become more and more prevalent? Yeah, it's, um, a, it's a problematic. Uh, yeah. Actually, there's a um, there's a study from the New England Journal of Medicine, and it's about okay. the pulse accelerometer 
device. So it's the little thing that looks like a clip that they put on your finger. If you go to the hospital and they're supposed to check the oxygen in your mm -hmm. blood. Yeah. And they were saying that um, uh, they had done a study in the U.S. of over 10,000 patients who had used this thing. And they said that people of color, they had an error rate three times anyone else. And it gave a false positive reading. So the, the reading made it seem like the person was healthier than they were. And you know, one doctor said it would have been the difference between being admitted to the hospital or not. So yeah. it would give a reading that was too high that made it seem like the person was, their oxygen level was higher than it was. So there are a lot of people who are sent home that should have been admitted to the hospital because of this. So I think, you know, as we're seeing and as people are um, um, being able to test these algorithms or look at them and see that there's a problem, I would like to see more of an impetus to make those changes or corrections in AI. Right now, the, the law isn't forcing companies to do that, so they sort of have to decide on their own whether they do it. But I think the huge, there are a lot of gaps here, right? But one of the really big gaps is how is it possible that you can sell something as if it works for everyone and it does not? Like that's a huge problem. And you know, it goes back to, again, my product recall days. I mean, you would think, and, and also it brings up two things, product defect, um, but also, um, you know, this idea of security by design and privacy by design. And you could go from that to just why aren't the modems um, have security by design? Why do the default passwords exist as they do? Isn't there a way that the technicians could make these devices of all types better? Um, right. And so with that, um, because, you know, if there's not a legal obligation to do something, what, right. what is human nature? So <laughs> produce quickly, let's get them out there. If they're not accurate, we'll figure it out on the fly. Right. And how does it change? Well, in a litigious society like the U.S., it'll change because there's a product liability suit or a discrimination suit, mm -hmm. you know, or false arrest suit, you know, um, and people sue for everything here. So, yeah. you know, unfortunately, we use the legal system to make changes through the back door, so to speak. Yeah. Well, the problem with this, with with AI and stuff is that the harm can be rapid and it can be completely devastating. So mm -hmm. there almost is no acceptable redress, you know, right. if you're arrested or killed because the algorithm said that you're a suspect yeah. or something. Yeah. So, I mean, th this is, this is why we need the next generation, probably a good segue into what my other passion, which is, getting more people involved in STEM and particularly girls and women. And I can give you some statistics on that, but oh, we, yeah. you know, I, I say to people, I don't have children, but I, my friends that have kids in college, I'm like, please take, have them take at least one computer science course. Yeah. There's so many open jobs in the STEM area, particularly cyber. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my pitch is always, we need our brightest minds to go into STEM subjects. They can't all go to wall street. Right. Right. We need scientists, both genders. And so, and the, the statistics are basically kind of shocking when it comes to, to girls and then the fall off from that of, of women leaving the STEM fields. But a couple of things that I, that I noted here was the Girl Scouts actually track STEM fields because they actually have like cyber badges and things. They didn't back in my day, but they do now. 
And the girls show a great interest in STEM subjects and then it falls away. And they said, without the encouragement of role models or mentor mentors, the focus shifts away. And it's this whole idea of, again, back to basics. Who are the role models for the, the middle school girls who might like science, but nobody in their family studies it? Um, they're discouraged to do it and, and so they don't pursue it. Um, and then when you go to you know, adults, you look at women make up 28% of STEM fields, 28%. Right. So you know, um, this idea that the first woman astronaut, the first woman who, you know, we're doing all these firsts right now in sports mm -hmm. and in science and all of that. Mm -hmm. Let's get to the point where um, it's not just the first, that people reach back and bring more up and you know, it, it's a big part of our population. Let's make sure that they are contributing to these issues that we're discussing right here. We uh, need mm -hmm. scientists, we need innovators, we need people that are going to come up with solutions for this in the next 10 or 20 years. Totally. And then we also need, you know, men as advocates for to bring, sure. to open those doors and bring in people. Some of, some of my, you know, most impactful in, um, mentors in my career have been male, thankfully, you know, they Mine were, too. they were very kind to teach me, you know, I was really hungry to learn, um, yeah. teach me a lot of things, give me great advice. Uh, so yeah, we definitely need more, more women and girls in technology. Absolutely. Yeah. And just encouragement in gen, in, in, um, in general, there was, there was an interesting article in the Princeton review, a math professor, gave his perspective and he said, women should not be intimidated. <laughs> yeah, I had to laugh at this one. STEM involves learning how to break down a problem, analyze it and solve it in a systematic way. This is not really about calculation. It's about critical thinking. And my thought was we women do this every day in our personal lives. So Absolutely. what's you? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we, we get a problem, we break it down, we figure out a solution and, and there we are. So, you know, it, it's, we need the encouragement, we need the role models and also um, we need the financial support. So, right. you know, the, the idea of taking a bite out of the elephant. So, you know, this is accomplished by including more girls and women in the process Changing the education system is very difficult, but you can have um, programs and academies to focus on girls and women in STEM. And that's another thing that I would like to be involved in. Um, yeah. Maybe we can address that in a, in a separate uh, podcast focused on that exclusively, Debbie. We'll oh, have sure. to see. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> We've done things, we collaborated in the past, so we could definitely yeah. do some other things. Uh, Tell me a bit about this law in Mexico that you were talking about. Yeah, this that's interesting because I just literally, <laughs> it just crossed my LinkedIn uh, page today. I love when you get these prompts on LinkedIn and it's like, oh, wow. So basically they have created, they just passed a law, a national registry of biometrics. And what they decided was because of the frequency of crime, extortion, kidnapping, and even like using cell phones in the prisons, they decided to have people give up the new customers of cell phones, not the current ones. They have to give their eye scans and fingerprints to get a cell phone. And again, supported by this need to reduce crime. And it's passed, but you know, the idea is that their, their version of the ACLU and their 
advocates have said, you know, this is way over the top. They're, they're crying foul to this. And so the first person I thought of was you in terms of the privacy. Um, and because we've talked about, you know, BIPA in Illinois with the biometrics and some of the California laws that are addressing biometrics. So this was this, I think this was a shocker that this was done. And um, I think it's unique in terms of countries doing this, as far as I know, there may be something like this in China. I'm not sure. Yeah. Maybe you know? Yeah. Um, yes. But to this level clicks. of saying, you know, here's your Verizon cell phone. Right. Put your eyes here and your fingerprint. I mean, yeah. it's just, we can't imagine doing that. Yeah. I think, so biometrics is very tricky. So what, what is happening, what we're seeing is, uh, push towards finding a reason to be able to collect biometrics. So one of those reasons I think is going to be COVID in the future. So that's, that's what we're talking about. These health or immunity passports about who's been vaccinated and who hasn't and all that stuff. So we're going to get and get there. Uh, but this, you know, I think what Mexico is probably saying is that we want this information period. <laughs> yeah. And then let's make it about cell phones. So eventually it will go the other, you know, it, they'll expand it in some way. So yeah. it's, to me, it's, not, it's somewhat similar to what we have in the U.S. with this TSA pre-check, which mm -hmm. was, you know, give us all this additional information so that you, you keep your shoes on when you go through security or something. And then- I haven't done that yet, so. No, no, I haven't either. I'm, I'm risk like, averse. Yeah, I'm like, I, I'm good, I'm good, I'm fine. I'll stand I'll in take line, my shoes I'm off. okay. <laughs> To me, that wasn't a good enough reason, but you know, yeah. the thing that concerned me about the TSA pre-check or it's just kind of this massive data gathering. So they're basically mm -hmm. putting this information in the database and then if anything happens, they look at that database first before they go to other things. So uh, yeah. I, the problem I had was, and the, the issue that I have with this type of massive data collection is if you're trying to find a needle in a haystack, why create a bigger haystack? That right. makes no sense. So yeah. I need a better reason for people to collect this data. It's not a good reason. <laughs> it made me think too of um, you being a Chicagoan that I think it was uh, at O'Hare Airport, Delta, and this was a year or so ago, started for the international uh, flights, a facial recognition based on your passport photo. And I couldn't help thinking of the born identity where somebody has like 10 passports. So which oh, photo totally. are you going to use? And so they were, I don't know if that was just a pilot and they mm -hmm. tested it, if it's still there. I haven't flown out of Delta mm -hmm. uh, International and O'Hare, but you know, there are these little snippets of, of companies trying this and yeah. is it assessed? Is it used? Do they run right. it through sort of the privacy data mm -hmm. mapping standards that are mm -hmm. out there or do they just yeah. wing it? Yeah. Some of it, it has to do with consent. So mm -hmm. Your consent, um, the sky is almost the limit to what you can consent to. So I always tell mm -hmm. people it's illegal to sell your limbs, right? But that's pretty much it. So if they can get you to consent, and regardless of how crazy it seems, especially if you're, you're um, especially with free services, I think we see this a lot where they're saying we're doing all this work for you and we're doing this stuff for free. And then we get to decide what how high or 
the value is based on what you you can give me in return. So that's kind of a problem. So yeah, I'm really concerned because a lot of times the this data collection, uh, once it's collected for one thing, is is almost always used for something else. So I was really happy to see that sort of purpose limitation in the GDPR and that they're very mm-hmm. strongly pushing things about when a data goes to third party, you have to get consent or you can't transfer it. So we're starting to see that seep into a lot of the privacy laws in the U.S., like uh, CCPA and CC, uh, CPRA mm-hmm. about third party data transfer. That's like the hot new thing. Yeah, and as, as the laws spread east, you know, you're getting hybrids of all these different things, which actually, you know, from a business owner standpoint, it, it's very difficult to map this out. So it's like, do you take the least common denominator or do you take the most severe Yeah. and, and, and comply to that level? Because it, it becomes this hodgepodge. And I'm always looking for maps that show the different standards in the U.S. So you can say this, this, this. But yeah. it's not easy to comply. It's extremely hard to do. So uh, uh, Jeff Jokic actually was on my show uh, several weeks ago. And he actually compiled a really good one. And it looks like a quilt, actually. So it's color-coded. You just go on his profile and look for that. But it's really hard. Uh, the one yeah. thing that I try to tell people, instead of kind of lurching from one law to the next, I know people, uh, it is complicated, but it doesn't have to be as complicated as people make it. Say one thing is you, as a business owner, you need to realize that when people uh, use your services, they own their data and they're uh, giving it to you on loan and you're like a steward of the data. So if you understand that you're a steward of the data that they give you, then you can change your whole perspective about how how you handle data. So I try to make the analogy of it like a bank. So let's say you gave your bank money and then you said you wanted to see your balance. They say, well, we can't show you your balance. You'd be like, hit the roof, right? You'd be so upset about that. So think of data that way. Think of, you know, the person gave it to you for safekeeping to use it for a particular purpose, and they have a right to see and a right to know um, what you're doing with it, and you need to be responsible. Yeah, that's a great analogy. I love that story. Yeah. Yeah. So I would love to ask you, um, so if it was the world, according to... uh, Cyber Dawn and Dawn, Christy, uh, about data privacy or cybersecurity, what would be your wish either in the U.S. or around the world? Uh, I go back to this idea of um, starting small and building from there. So increasing the awareness of it, not just relying on nightly news programs, but you know, I, I love the idea of collaboration that's going on with some of the cybersecurity experts and firms around the world. But really, it starts almost at the grassroots level for people to understand this isn't just a risk on the news. There's things that you can do. And I like what you said about understanding data privacy, because it's the same thing with cybersecurity. So in the ideal world, increase awareness, but have the people that hear the stories and, and get the awareness training to act on it. You know, awareness on its own doesn't do anything. You have to, you have to take responsibility and have some action in your household, in your business, um, in your affairs. So that would be one thing. And then the other is 
you know, it, it kind of comes with a bigger theme of helping and protecting. And this is kind of like the idealist you're asking in this sort of world, but you know, mm -hmm. just, it goes this idea of helping each other. This is one area where we can do that with, with protecting our information, our privacy, our irises, our fingerprints. I mean, we are not at the point where we've surrendered everything just yet. Right. So we still have, we still have a chance to stop, stop the flow, so to speak. So, so improve the training, improve the action on the training, and then also stop the flow of our information um, going to anybody for any purpose and, and getting control of that. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. So this has well, been a great, me. this has been a great episode. It's always fun to talk to you. We could probably talk for hours about stuff like this. So we yep, have to have you back on again. We have to talk about some more stuff. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. I'd, lo I'd love to come back. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dawn. This is great. And we'll talk soon. Okay. Take care, Debbie. Thank you okay. so much. All right. Bye-bye.